All right. So I'm here with Dr. Raymond Norman after uh, an hour-long mic check session. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the, the first official podcast recording. So, uh, so bear with me, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have some fun. Um, I'm here with Dr. Raymond Norman, who works with children and adults uh, dealing with uh, various mood disorders. Um, and is a, he's also a clinical psychologist. And I say clinical because there are a lot of psychologists and people walking around with PhDs who do mostly research, and they're not getting their hands dirty. They're not doing the day-to-day work, right? And But Dr. Raymond Norman is in here uh, getting his hands dirty, uh, working with uh, people of all ages and uh, with different uh, mental issues. How are you doing, doctor? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Leo. How are you doing? I'm a little sweaty right now. It's yeah, hot outside. <laughs> <laughs> I was carrying a I was carrying this huge mic stand in here. Uh but I will I will dry off uh pretty soon. This is par for the course. Um I was that kid who had to bring like two t shirts to school uh because I would sweat on the way to school. And then at recess, and you know, so I was that was that kid, and apparently that adult also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doctor uh, Norman, I you know I am excited to have you on because uh, you do you are working with uh, children and adults who have uh, various mood disorders, uh, but specifically uh, depression uh, su- and uh, suicidal ideations. Um, have you have you worked with anyone who has attempted suicide? I've definitely worked with people who have tried to kill themselves, okay. uh, whether it's indirectly or directly. Um, you know, it could be people who take drugs, for example, especially for a long time. It can be argued that unconsciously or very consciously they're trying to kill themselves. Um, you know, they want to end their life. They want to put an end to the misery. And then at the other spectrum, you have people who, you know, might want to actually kill themselves with a very clear plan to do it, not through drugs. Right. You know, it could be through a knife or it could be through other means. Mm-hmm. You know, very desperate measures that people get into. Um, it can prompt them to really seek desperate uh, solutions to get out of it. Is there a, is there a, a difference between self-harm and suicidality? Absolutely. Uh, Self-harm, for example, somebody can cut themselves. Um, Some people get into this pattern of, you know, they can take a razor blade and they will have designs of cuts on their arm or even their legs. And what people sometimes misunderstand about that is that these people are trying to kill themselves. That's actually not the case. Most frequently, that's not the case. What the case is that they are trying to cut themselves so that they can feel the pain so that the physical pain, um, it masks their emotional pain. It kind of distracts them from the emotional pain. Because if you're going through a hard time emotionally, when you cut yourself, your attention is going immediately to that physical cut. So as long as you are focused on that physical cut, for those few moments, you forget about the emotional pain that you're in. You know, I'm watching a show right now called Sharp Objects on HBO. Okay. And uh, the lead, and I'm not, no spoilers, don't worry about it. Uh, the lead actress, Amy Adams, she takes her shirt off in one of the scenes, and from head to toe, she has written 
and uh into herself you know different like you know profanities and names and and dates and things like that and anytime she gets upset she cuts herself and like you said it doesn't feel like she wants to kill herself necessarily it's just that her emotional pain because of what she went through early in her life uh is so much to bear that this is how it this is how she copes with it absolutely and another thing that people can do is when they cut is that, you know, when you see the blood coming out, it kind of reinforces that you're a human being. Because when you go through so much emotional turmoil and you just don't know what to do with yourself, it's very easy to enter a phase of confusion. And it's hard, like you can't even believe that you're, you're going through what you're going through. So sometimes something as concrete as seeing the blood and maybe touching the blood, maybe even spreading it, it reinforces to you that you're still a human being, you're still alive. And it kind of quells those doubts that you might have about yourself. Uh, when you say it reinforces that you're still a human being, still alive, is that what they're what they're trying to? Is that what they're trying to achieve? Like, is are they are they not feeling like a human, or are they not feeling alive? Like, can you ex- can you expound on that? I think definitely when people are were cutting themselves, mm-hmm. there is a deep sense of pain that they're going through. And through that, they can start to dovetail into like, I wish I weren't alive. That's where the suicidality can kick in. But usually if someone wants to kill themselves, they're not just going to cut themselves. They will take extreme measures to do what they need to do to get it done. But when a person is going through self-harm, there is still that idea that they want to live. But they're teetering with like, how do I get rid of this pain? Right. And so when you cut yourself, you're hurting yourself, but not enough to actually terminate your life just yet. How, what are other ways that people uh, inflict self-harm that may look like they're suicidal, but they just really are trying to get rid of the pain besides the cutting of themselves? I think a, a lot of things that we people do in general is to get rid of the pain. You know, um, even if it's taking drugs or alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, that's a way that, you know, people are trying to get rid of the pain. Um, what I try to really use to distinguish between self-harm and suicidality is that the person who's self-harming, they really want to live. Like, there is a desire to keep going through life. They're just going through a hard time, and they don't know how to cope. But they know they do want to. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to suicidality, you're entering a mindset where the person is really, like, they're teetering with death. Like, they're coming to terms with, like, maybe this world is not made out for them. Like, they're more going down that line. So you're dealing with two very similar phenomena, but they're also sort of different. So, you know, even, for example, when it comes to our reporting laws, you don't report self-harm necessarily if someone's cutting themselves. But if someone talks about they want to kill themselves, that is something that we are mandated to report on. And and what are some healthy ways that people can cope with those with those extreme uh, with the extreme emotions? Uh, You know, besides, you know, obviously cutting yourself or turning to drugs and alcohol. I know I turn to food. Right. Uh, to kind of numb the pain. But what are some what are uh, healthier options that that people can turn to? I think one of the best things that people can do when they're in that point of despair mm-hmm. is if they can find someone that they trust to really confide in and to open up and talk about like what they're really going through. I think that could be a big help. Uh, in the meantime, you know, journaling. I'm a big advocate of journaling. You know, people writing down their feelings, their thoughts, what's bothering them. Possibly sharing it with someone that they trust later on Mm -hmm. or not sharing it. You know, it's really up to them. 
Um, I think sometimes putting yourself in a, a more serene environment could be helpful. Um, like going for a walk, going hiking. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe like do some exercising a little bit. A little spa day. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but also keep in mind that there's a difference between distracting yourself, which look, it, there could be a healthy distraction and actually working on the real issue at hand. If someone is suicidal, chances are that, for example, writing can be very good. Going for that walk, excellent. You know, going to the spa, if that's what helps you get through the moment, do it. But understand that also deep down, there's probably an emptiness, a pain that's lingering. And in order to get the suicidality to go away, that really needs to be addressed. So uh, it sounds like wh what I hear you saying is, um, you know, instead of harming yourself, you know, you can go for the walk, you can exercise, you can do these things that make you feel better. But because you feel better doesn't mean that what caused it is better. Correct. Is that what you're saying? Right. You still have to come back after that long walk and <laughs> figure out what made you want to take that long walk and do that work. Absolutely. Because otherwise you're just putting a patch on the wound. And the patch can only work for so long. But on the other hand, if you get to the root cause and you try to understand, like, where is this really coming from? Mm. And you take the steps to address the issues that need to be to be addressed then chances are that that suicidal, suicidal tendencies will start to wither away. Can you, um, w when it comes to journaling, because you mentioned journaling, and, you know, I, I talked to a, a lot of, I remember when I was in high school and the teacher would be like, I need you to journal. And as a guy, the first thing I'm thinking is like, I'm not journal. I'm not <laughs> right. writing feelings. Get out of here. I'm going to go right. play a game or, you know. Right. And, um, and But even as an adult, there's still a lot of men, but even women who, you know, we kind of look at journaling like who does that, right? right. Um, are there some, besides just writing down your feelings? Because that's, I think that's a tough entry point for a lot of people. Yeah. Because we, we're taught not to talk about our feelings. What are some just like simple things we can write or journal that, um, like I do gratitude lists sometimes. Yeah. So that's a easy, that's easier than I feel sad or I feel frustrated. What are some other things that, like, you know, you people can specifically journal that can um, kind of unravel their emotions besides getting straight to the... Sure. I think one really effective prompt is, you know, what's bothering you? Mm. If you have, write the question on top of the paper or the laptop or whatever. What's bothering you? You know, how many times you go through life and you're, you might be complaining about something... And then you come across somebody who says, hey, like, what's bothering you? Like, in my experience, a lot of people are not confronted with this question. It's all about let me try to fix your problem. Let's try to figure this out. Let's get the solution. But really, a lot of times, I think people just want to talk about what's bothering them. And just having that space, feeling comfortable about talking what they're going through, it, can get, it has a very healing property, in my experience. So as you can probably imagine, in my line of work, there's a lot of what's bothering you going on. Right. You know, trying to get people to really look at themselves and understand like, hey, what is really getting under my skin? And sometimes you're not even aware of it. You might, something might trigger you and over a period of time, you're like, you get triggered, but then you try to cover up with different things and can be very innocent. Like you don't mean to get yourself in this position necessarily. But it's like, oh, this feels uncomfortable, so let me just go do something, whether it's I'm going to go eat, I'm going to go work out, I'm going to go, you know, partying or stuff like that, ways to distract yourself. 
But then if you don't really treat it, then it gets to a point where you can hit an impasse. And then usually when people come to me, they've hit the impasse because they've tried to do it on their own and it hasn't been working. So then that's really my job is to really get to the heart of it and to realize like what is really happening here. And the question, it sounds simple, but I find it very powerful, is what's bothering you? That is a very powerful question. I was listening to a friend of mine on a pod, another podcast, and uh, the, the guy asked him, he goes, you know, because he's, he's, my, my friend is 52, he's in great shape, and uh, he practices tennis and all these other different things. And the guy was like, you know, why do you, why do, you do so much? Because he's very accomplished. And he said... You know, they're just, he goes, I work out because, you know, uh, being overweight, or be, like, that just bothers me. He like, I, I, I like to address what bothers me. Mm-hmm. And it was something in that hour and a half podcast, for some reason, that stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I never thought of things in those terms. Like, usually it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of us use words like hate. Like, we use these extreme words. Right. But bother is such a a specific nuanced way of like looking at things. Um, and I find myself, I go, it's not that I want to go to the gym cause I feel fat. It just bothers me to feel the way that I feel. And I, I need to, I know there's another way to get there or it, like I was on a date with a friend and uh, she was speaking Spanish and it bothered me that I couldn't speak Spanish, that I couldn't communicate, that mm-hmm. I had no idea what was going on between her and this other person she was talking to. So now I'm studying Duolingo. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it bothered me that much. I felt left out, you know? Yeah, and you know, oftentimes I think it takes courage to admit that something's bothering you. Um, not you, but every all of us. Absolutely. Because again, we live in this, we were talking about this before, you know, we live in a world where there's a lot of pressure to look good. There's a lot of pressure to put up a facade and to put up this image of yourself that you're perfect everything's fine your life is amazing you have no troubles and unfortunately the problem arises when a person starts to believe these things you know they start to believe that they're you know who they are on instagram or who they are on facebook is who they actually are when in reality it's not necessarily who they are but who they want people to think that they are yes so when you ask some of the question what's bothering you it's like oh i didn't even realize something was bothering me that you had this thing under your skin right. that that you were re- that you've been reacting this entire time. Right. You just thought it, it like you thought it was the thing that you're mad at, but really it was ten things that happened before that. Right. It, um, I remember when I was uh, a girl I, I was dating, we went to uh, couples therapy, and one of the things that the therapist pointed out that I didn't even realize was when we are emotional. The, the first emotion that we express isn't always, isn't the only emotion. There are five other emotions. But usually we react to the first. Like if she comes home and she says, I'm upset, you're like, why are you upset? And then she'll be like, I'm frustrated. Why are you frustrated? Well, I'm sad. It's like there's like five other emotions under there. But usually we don't get to those emotions. We don't really get to what's bothering her. We always stop at the surface level e- emotion. Um well, if you're going from someone who says that they're frustrated to sad, yeah, that's a very special person. <laughs> you know? And I'm saying that in a great way. Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. who has that kind of insight into themselves to realize that their frustration is rooted in sadness. That's yes. 
that's gold in this line of work. Well, <laughs> it, it, uh, you're absolutely right. And, and the way that she was able to express that is because I, I was then learning to say when she is upset or angry to say, what else are you feeling? Right. And I just never thought about feelings in that way because I'm usually just thinking I'm that one feeling that surfaces easiest or that I've been hearing as a child, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the, the expression of feelings is it takes a lot of vulnerability to do that. You know, it takes making yourself open and making yourself transparent. First of all, to yourself, to recognize that that's the kind of person you are, that you have these feelings. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, if you're opening yourself up to someone who you care about, you know, there's that fear of possible criticism, possible rejection. That like, especially if you're a man and you're talking about these feelings, it's like, whoa, like, like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You know, that that is a common concern that I, I think men would probably have. Yeah, yeah, like you're sad. You can't be sad as a man, or you can't be like, can you just hold me for two <laughs> Like, you can't. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but as a man, we want to be held. Sometimes I just want to be held. Sure, sure. <laughs> and look, it actually, it takes a lot of strength to make yourself vulnerable. How, how, as a man, because, uh, like, like you know, we, we laugh about it, but, yeah, no man is really going to say, I feel sad, or... Can you just hold me like that's just not, you know, it's not in our culture. It's not in our DNA. But what are some ways? Because I've even seen it where like men have expressed their emotions and then been shot down by their woman or the woman loses respect for them. How are ways that we can express those moments of sadness or melancholy or, um, you know, when we're just a little off in a way that is empowering Um uh, you know, I don't know if can you. Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, it's important for the person to be honest with themselves about how they feel. Mm. So if you're feeling sad, like don't sugarcoat it. Be mm. honest with yourself. I feel sad. Now, when it comes to expressing it to different parties, I think it's important to first of all know who you're talking with, uh, and Absolutely. how to phrase it in a way that they may not feel threatened by it, because that's what really happens. People feel threatened. The people who get angry or they shut them off, mm -hmm. um, it tends to come from a feeling of threat. Because if you're a man talking about feeling sad, um, you may not realize it, but maybe this person is not used to seeing men talk that way. So it really challenges their expectations about how men are supposed to be socially. Oh, so the, the woman can feel threatened because if she's in a relationship with you, yeah. and then all of a sudden you're showing vulnerability, she then, I guess, uh, is partly afraid that she picked the wrong partner that you can't protect her, which is why most women are with men stereotypically, right? Stereotypically, right. right. And it's like, oh, my God, like, I, I thought you were alpha and, and now you're showing beta sign. Because I even had, was right. it, I, I, I remember I was, it just like happened a couple weeks ago. I was, uh, I was, um, I was out with some friends. And I was talking about how I can't put this p picture up on a dating website. And I was like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm too big or it's not the right angle. And my right. friend was like, who's this insecure Leo? I don't like this insecure Leo. <laughs> and I was like, I can't be like, I can't be both powerful sometimes and insecure. Like, you know, like right. it's a part of our makeup. 
but yeah, so uh, you know, please expound on that. Yeah, so the reality is that while it might seem that the man is insecure mm-hmm. when he's talking about feeling vulnerable, I mean, the reality is every human being is insecure by the nature of being a human being and alive. Uh, that's just reality. And actually, the person who's able to make themselves vulnerable is a demonstration of greater security. So if a person has, is having a hard time withstanding somebody talking about like feeling sad or vulnerable, the reaction that they have tends to be more about maybe their own experiences that they're projecting onto the person. Absolutely. Because usually if you're talking about feeling sad, you're talking about yourself. And if you're secure with yourself, you can understand and possibly relate to what that person is talking about mm-hmm. and have compassion for them and speak with them in a gentle way. So really it comes down to security, I think, has a lot to do with the person's ability to feel comfortable in their own skin and to not sugarcoat things, at least their own in their own mind. You know, just be very honest and be very real and to say, like, look, this is the way I am. This is how I feel right now. Um, I'm, I, and I understand it's not going to be like this forever. In fact, I think that the, the people who can admit that they're hurt, for example, or that they're sad, they are more likely to bounce back stronger than the people who don't have these conversations with themselves because it seems like they might be they're in they might be in the business of constantly distracting themselves and as long as you distract yourself yeah i understand that it can it can be a little bit challenging to admit certain things about how you feel Mm -hmm. but the truth is that when you get to the truth it really does set you free you know maybe not immediately but in the long term it really it creates a stability inside you and a solidity that really is going to be hard to shake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, all of a sudden you're breathing a lot deeper. Your shoulders drop. You feel more connected. The world seems like a, a brighter place. Right. And when you get in the habit of validating yourself and what you're going through, that is probably one of the best things anybody can do for themselves. It's the best investment long term, you know, so that this way you you don't need you don't necessarily need other people to validate you about what you're going through though absolutely it helps yes i mean i don't know anybody who doesn't like validation absolutely everyone loves it yes but to the extent that you can learn how to give it to yourself and be happy on your own terms independent of what other people think about you i really think that is something to strive for now can you can you can you uh define more about what that means to validate yourself like what does that look like practically so you can acknowledge that this is what you're going through. So, for example, if you're going through a tough time, um, acknowledge that you're going through a tough time. You know, don't try to distract yourself by getting compliments from other people. Wait, you're soliciting ways to get attention from other people to distract you from the pain that you're going through. Just like be able to sit with yourself and not necessarily sit. You can walk. You could go about your day. But have this dialogue with yourself, telling yourself, like, look, it's okay. I'm going through a tough time. These are the things that are happening. It makes sense. You know, it makes sense. Given given your circumstances, you know, if you're struggling, uh, if you're going through a divorce, lost a house, the kids, you know, like, it it makes sense. Somebody in your situation, you're not getting enough sleep, et cetera, et cetera. Health issues. Anybody in your position would feel the way that you feel. And I think if you have that dialogue going on in your head... It doesn't mean that you're doomed to stay in that position forever. What it does is it's meant to acknowledge where you are because I think sometimes that acknowledgement helps you move forward. Right, because when, you, when you're when you trying to hold the emotions, it's kind of like trying to hold down a beach ball underwater. 
Right. right? Like it's like it takes a lot of energy and eventually your arms are going to be able to do it. I don't care how strong you are, but you can't hold it under there that long and it's going to surface. And when it does, it's going to hit you in the face and pop up. And exactly. <laughs> and it could possibly hurt other people. It could hurt other people. Absolutely. And it comes by surprise. Yes. And that's exactly how feelings can come up when they're bottled up for a long time. It takes one little tap and then like the beach, but it'll pop out. And then it's it's sad because then it becomes hurtful first to the person who's doing it and to the people around. So really, it's a it's a no win situation. Right. But the win win situation is the person who can actually be honest with themselves about how they feel. And, you know, even as we're talking about suicidality, Mm -hmm. there's such a taboo talking about suicidality that I think especially in my experience working with people who are suicidal, just having that conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, usually when people are suicidal, they know that there's a stigma attached to it. People don't go around talking, hey, yeah, I'm suicidal. I thought about killing myself. Right, like, people right. don't talk that way. No, no. So th- I think there's that, that self-blame and self-judge, negative judgment that people have that adds a layer of pressure. And ostr- o- they become ostracized in their own mind. But when you can talk about it with somebody and you're like, oh, like they get it, mm-hmm. I think it tends to bring down some of the weight. What are some of the things that take place that that we all experience that can cause us to feel like um you know uh, depressed or sad or like oh my god like i'm just really off today like those like you know like we talked about like losing your job or you know things like that what are those things that we're all going through that people think they're the only ones going through it and that if somebody else was going through this they'd be able to right <laughs> right. That's what we think, right? We think, oh, you know, if Will Smith was going through this, he'd be <laughs> right. he'd be crushing it. He'd figure this out, you know. Right. That's a, I think that's a really good question. I think one thing that pops to my head is that, you know, unmet expectations is a huge one. Mm. We live in a world, especially here, where the expectations are set so high that sometimes it's just not attainable as a society. And what happens is that if people are exposed to these messages, which later become expectations for themselves, and they realize that they're falling short, they might continue to get down on themselves because they're not reaching this threshold. You know, it could be with a job, relationship status, how much money you're making, what car you're driving, who you know, how many people you know, how many friends you have on Facebook, how many likes you got on that picture, that comment. These are all things that we usually have expectations going into them. So if they're not met, it's very easy for a person to get down on themselves. Man, every time I, I, you know, actually I'm taking a social media break right now. Oh, good. Because (laughs) I realize every time I post, even though I say I'm going to post, but I'm not going to look at anything else on there. I'm just going to post and then get off. But then I find that I'm distracted by I wonder how many likes I got. And I wonder if people are receiving it correctly. And, you know, what are the comments and is it getting shared and things of that nature. So. Even though I'm not on social media, I have this kind of um, low vibrational distraction taking place subconsciously that it's it's turned on by it. And like it was like, uh, you know, like my self-esteem is wrapped around it. Right. And I think it's very interesting that you brought that point up, because I think what Facebook is really good at doing, which I think is a big reason that they're as successful as they are. They have such a big following Mm -hmm. is that. The whole concept of a like 
You know, you think that if someone likes your photo, they like you. Yes. You take it personally. Yes. Or if they like my comment, oh, that must mean I'm a great person. Mm -hmm. And you feel giddy and happy. And if you don't get that, you're like, oh, man, I'm a failure. So maybe I need to, like, take this down because I can't show people, <laughs> right, that I didn't get so much attention on this. That really what it's going down to, and it, again, ties in really nicely with suicidality, mm -hmm. is that there's this desire for connection, I think human beings are wired innately because they want to connect. They want to feel like they matter. They want to feel like they're accepted and they want to feel like they belong. And it's a very noble thing. Now, it's very important what you decide to get your connection from. Mm. You know, obviously Facebook, it, it has its advantages, mm -hmm. but the reality is you can have the nicest Facebook profile. You can have thousands of friends. You could have millions of likes on photos and still you can be the loneliest person on earth. Right. And I think that's a very, it's a very harsh reality, but I think if people stop and think about it critically, then they're, they might, and they're more thoughtful about their actions, they might start to realize that the key to having strong connections is not necessarily through the computer. Maybe it's like, remember in the good old days, people would call each other? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Leave voice messages? Oh, man. You know? And that was a great feeling. You get home, you see that little uh, that light beeping, the little boop boop, and you knew you had messages on the voicemail machine. Right. Uh, and, and now we get that fixed, you know, too quick. Yeah. There's, there's no delayed gratification. Right. You know, how many times do people have that conversation with themselves if – for example, they didn't get the likes that they wanted. They're like, wow, I feel really sad. You know, wow, people don't like me? Right, right. You know, I don't think people are used to having these kind of dialogues with themselves. But in reality, that is what's driving them. Because what else would drive, some, would drive somebody to have such an extravagant photo or to, <laughs> to say something so outlandish? The point is because you want to get attention. You Absolutely. want people to look at you, validate you, notice you. And, you know, you might confuse that as like, oh, they like me if they give me this attention. Yeah. But to really live a happy life, I think it's very important to be 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 mindful about where you're trying to get your attention from. It, it's interesting. You, you even mentioned I was uh, I was talking to a friend today about that uh, because, you know, she's trying to lose a couple pounds and she's like, once I lose the weight, then guys will like me, you mm -hmm. know, and I go, well, if you. If you can't, if they're not liking you now, then they're not going to like you when you've <laughs> lost the weight because you're, you're associated with your, how you look physically, but then you will, um, I feel like you'll, um, be too, you'll eventually you'll be resentful that they only like you for, because of how you look physically. You right. know what I mean? So yeah. that's the catch 22. The thing that you want them to pay attention to is the thing that you'll then, I think, get upset. Like, you only want me for this thing. It's like somebody who makes a lot of money uh, and is luring the women in with the cars or the whatever. And then at some point, it's like, well, you only with me because of my car. It's like, well, that was the bait you put out there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and look, there's something to be said about for sure, like. You'll probably be noticed yes. differently. Yeah. But to your point, it's very important to realize how do you want to be noticed? Mm. You know, if you're leading with that foot, yes. then don't say, why are people treating me this way because of, you know, this feature? Or 
how, if you're leading with your money and you're like, why are people using me for my money? Well, you kind of set yourself up for that. Not that you intentionally wanted that to happen, but that's a potential consequence of leading with that foot. But on the other hand, right. if you're leading with, you know, who you are as a person, you know, I think there's something very attractive about being comfortable in your own skin. And it's something that you can't really fake. No. You know, someone no. who has self-acceptance, they're yes. working on themselves, they're growing, they're refining their character. It There's like a certain light that they emit. And people notice. And I think what you will find is that when people are doing that, they're not doing it to be noticed. They're doing it because that's the kind of person they want to be. Yes. And to that point that when people really focus on being who they want to be, independent of other people's opinions, they actually become much better people. And you want to be around them because they're insecure. Yeah. Because they're they're able to laugh at themselves. Right. And they're not looking for the laugh. But it's kind of like uh, Jennifer Lawrence when she uh, fell going up the stairs at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Like we all... You know, we were all like, oh, you know, we fell in love with her at that moment or like a Julia. Like there's something about celebrities or somebody who we deem as having high status, but we see their their fatal flaws because it makes us we go, oh, okay, they're human like I am. Exactly. And so I think we look at people the same way as like, you know, as long as you can laugh at yourself without it being um, self-indulgent. Where, like, you're only pointing out your flaws as a way to get attention. Because then there's that person, too, who are, like, who they cry about, like, what their issues are. But it's, like, a way of drawing people in. Right. I remember I saw an article somewhere where it said a celebrity had admitted that they're battling with depression. And and it got such a, like, such a big um, following. Like, so many people were, like, commenting or whatever on Mm -hmm. it. And I remember thinking to myself, like, really like that's normal but look at the world we live in where that is such a big deal to people to admit the mere fact that yeah i struggle with depression wow and it was a celebrity i think yes so you know to your point it's like as a people we're placing these people who are celebrities and high status um professionals on such a pedestal that we're dehumanizing them and it's really not to our benefit because when you start to think that these human beings are superhuman, that they don't experience vulnerability, they don't go through hardship, which, let's be honest, the media kind of portrays that. Like, yeah. they're influencing people to think that. Right. Um, it's really setting up a, a distorted view of reality that just isn't true. And so people live and they try to aspire to that expect becoming that person. And like, wow, I can't get there because I, I struggle with depression. So that must mean I'm a failure. Like I'll amount to nothing in my life. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that no, like it's normal. So I was actually happy when that that article came out that that celebrity admitted to having struggle with depression because mm-hmm. I think it makes them more human and it brings more attention to the forefront that like, look, you can even be working this hard. You can be making all this money, get all this attention, but it doesn't mean you're immune to the human condition. What what's the difference between someone who is struggling with depression um, and someone who is uh, just depressed? I, I, I mean, does that make does that question make sense? Like, because I because I, it seems to me like there's some people who are always struggling with depression, like even from their childhood into mm-hmm. adulthood, and then there's some people who 
you know, like uh, there's like a postpartum depression. There's like more of an acute depression. It, can you speak more to that? Sure. I mean, I think some people might be predisposed for whatever reason. They'll be having depression for a longer time. Yeah. When I talk about people feeling depressed, I try to make a very conscious effort to talk about it as if they're struggling with depression. Okay. Because it's not they're not depression. It's not a condition like they have depression, mm -hmm. like the way they have diabetes. Okay. But it's, it adds an element of humanness to it. Like, look, it's an experience. You can get through it. Because I think that if people label themselves as like, oh, I'm depressed or oh, I'm suicidal, as opposed to I'm struggling with some depression or I'm struggling with these suicidal thoughts, then it it's a different way of looking at it. And I think the way you look at it has implications for the solutions that you can find for it. Because you are not your depression, you are not your suicidality, you're a human being first, yeah. and you happen to be going through these experiences, and you can get through them. I like that. It's it's just like somebody who, it's like calling somebody handicapped or homeless. It's just like, that's a person who's living on the street, that's a person who has a certain handicap. But, but the person comes first. Right. As opposed to like you're de like you're depressed like that's all you are like you're you're nothing else you're right. not a, a father uh, a teacher uh, you know there's so many other things that encapsulate you besides just the depression right and I think as long as as human beings we train ourselves to view other people as human beings first and everything else second it changes the way your attitude towards life. Mm. You start to realize, like, look, I have a lot in common with these people. Yeah. It doesn't matter what color they are, what they believe in, you know, how they look, what they do, how much they have, how much they don't have, what their circumstances are. When you start to realize, like, these people are people and I'm also a person, it adds that connectability factor. And I think especially when it comes to mood disorders, when it comes to suicidality, that's what people are craving. And it's the absence of that that leads people to have this desperate need to just want to escape reality the um what how do you handle parents who may be struggling with children because you also do group work yeah and you do uh you also work in family systems right um and before i forget i also want to ask you about motivational interviewing sure. but i want to come back to that um parents who are recognizing uh suicidal tendencies in their children Two questions. One, what are some of the things that parents are doing that kind of feed into that? And then two, what are things that they can do to pull their children out of it? I think one of the things that parents might be doing that exacerbates the situation is that they might be telling the kid to just get over it or just like mm. just denying it yeah. or, you know, just not giving it attention. Yeah. That can be hurtful. Uh, one of the things that they can do is to ask them, you know, honey, is something bothering you? Mm. And if they say no, know that they're not telling the truth and follow up, you know, because it's part of the whole thing is you want to pretend like nothing's bothering you. But yeah. I think a parent who is is know, knows what's happening, it, it would be very helpful for them and for their child to just first understand what's happening and to realize that this kid really needs a lot of care and guided care, you know, try to be there for them. Ask them the questions that help them look at themselves. In a way, it's like kind of be a therapist, but right. it's not like you're not their therapist. But I think 
you know, there are a lot of qualities that therapists have that a good human being can have too. Like? Like be a compassionate person. Yeah. You know, yeah. be gentle, be, you know, critical thinking, you know, be there present when you're talking to people. These are all elements that I think help people feel like they matter. And ultimately that's what they want to feel like they matter. Yeah. And when they feel safe that they can talk about like, you know what? I don't feel like I matter. There is so much power in that statement. Because how many times have you met someone who said that? Chances are probably less than five. Right, right. But it's the reality that sometimes, you know, people going through such hard times and the core is like they feel like no matter how much they try, they don't matter. Yeah. And that's a very understandable experience for a person to have. Especially when you consider, especially if a a child is saying that because uh, they have parents who, you know, hopefully love them and care about them. Right. Siblings. Uh, they go to school, there's a teacher, there are classmates. There are so many points of possible connection for then somebody to say, I feel like I don't matter. Like that's so powerful. Right. Right. Um, so many opportunities. So what what is the follow up question? Because I can also hear a, a lot of parents, you know, if they're raised by parents, because here's the thing, right? Like we expect that you're an adult, so you should know how to be compassionate. You should know how to listen. You should know what love is and right. how to be attentive. But we also have a lot of parents and adults who are raised by parents and adults who had none of those skills or at least didn't display any of them. And now they're in the same situation. And so what is that follow up question? Because I think as a parent, you also think like, I don't want to be harassing my kid either. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like you say, you know, is anything bothering you? The kid says, no, you know, something is going on. You know, do you say, well, we're going to talk about this, which is what, you know, I feel like some parents try to force the, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to sit here and whatever. And so what what it, what are the what's the what's the next step? I think it's really a mindset that a person has to have, mm. you know, as a parent, if you have this mindset of like having grace you know, you know, you have a demeanor that's inviting. You have a demeanor where you're secure. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, part of being a secure parent is you should be able to handle whatever your kids throw at you, good or bad. Though the good is easy to handle. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, but Absolutely. it's more like if the kid is having a tantrum, if the person says, you don't understand me, like, I don't love you. These are all understandable statements that a kid would make out of frustration and a desire to connect. Mm-hmm. Now, as a parent, if you can understand that, then I think, like, you know your kid. So when you marry these two together about, you know, your own security and you know who your who your kid is and where they're coming from, then hopefully together that can lead you to act in ways that are sensitive and compassionate towards him where you'll kind of figure out that, like, you know what, right now is a good time to, at, to talk to him and now is not such a good time. So you kind of get a feel for it about when to apply these um, applications. Yeah, as as you that's such a good point. So about timing also, because I realize, uh, uh, and one of my uh, couples therapy was like when my girlfriend was upset. That wasn't the time to try to fix things. Right. That was the time to just feel things. And so I would I was always like, what else are you feeling? How else do you feel? And then later on, when she was calm, which is like a day, maybe two days later, mm-hmm. then. I was able to come in and be like, what are some, you know, to come to be practical to address like, here, here are some solutions. Because then she was open to it. But I but I realized like when people are emotional, you can't really bargain. They're not rational. Mm -hmm. 
And so, like, I was just so it's like just to get them to get their feelings out, I think, you know, is what you're trying to do. And then that naturally, like you said, when you talk about it and you accept it and you acknowledge how you feel, people start to calm down. Right. And then once you get them there, then you can go in with the fix. But I think uh, as a guy, especially, I know I was always trying to fix things immediately. Right. And they just wanted me to feel. <laughs> and I was like, right. wait, what? What is that thing? What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can you, um, uh, and so to segue into motivational interviewing, beca- uh, because I know you also specialize in that. What is that technique and how, how do we use that? Motivational interviewing is basically a technique where, you don't push people. I mean, I think this is a good technique to have in life and all your relationships. You know, don't push people. But specifically when it comes to motivational interviewing, it's about helping the person assess the good and the not good things about what they're doing. A lot of times it happens in the it comes in the context of addiction treatment. Mm. You know, people are ambivalent, meaning that they're not sure whether they want to continue with their addiction or or let it go. Because, you know, the reality is when you're talking about addiction, these people are very smart. They're engaging in these behaviors because it's giving them a reward, a payoff. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's like, but it's also causing this harm. So motivational interviewing really sets a platform for them to do their own comparison so they can realize, you know what? You know, I really really like the way this drug feels and it makes me feel and I get social attention for it and it alleviates my pain short term. But then on the other hand, I realize like when I'm not on it, I feel miserable and I'm harming my family members. I'm stealing from people. I'm in debt. You know, you just kind of have to balance the sheet and you have to realize like which one, which one do I really want more? And I think the beauty of motivational interviewing is it goes on the premise that the most effective change is in interchange, intrinsic change. Meaning you can't force people to change, mm-hmm. but what you can do is you can lay a, f- a platform for them to decide whether they want to change or not. Right. So it's kind of like, uh, like, hey, here's what we're wor- here's what works, here's what doesn't work. Right. Right. And so you, it's up to you to pick. Right. Uh, as, as opposed to me telling you what to do, it's like let's look at what you're already doing and what you're getting results from. And let's be clear, because maybe there are points you didn't consider. Absolutely. So you have a comprehensive view of what's happening, what the positive. Hey, what do you like about this positive? You said you like the partying stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. I get it. Now, what exactly is it about the partying that you like? Or like, okay, from the other hand, you're stealing from your parents. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I understand that that's not good. <laughs> but let's talk about like, w- like, why are you doing that? Yeah. Yes, you want the yeah. money for your fix or whatever. But what? Ma- how did you get to this point? Mm-hmm. Like, let's explore like how you even got here. If it bothers you, great. But let's try to get the to the root of it is like, how did this whole thing start? And it's a very non-judgmental, or I'll say it's a warm way of approaching people. Cause fact is no one likes to be worked on. No one likes to feel like someone is changing them. Uh, so when you make people feel like they are in charge of their decisions, yes. it really provides an empowerment, which I think is very necessary for people to have that self-esteem and self-confidence to be able to make decisions and move forward in their life with a sense of validation and self-worth. I love that. You're so right. Giving people options and I, and I, especially as parents, right? It's like, instead of telling your kids what to do is like, here's what happens if we do this. And here's what happens if we do that so that the kid learns how to 
uh, take charge of, the, of themselves and feel empowered. Absolutely. Um, so to wrap up here, because I know we're short on time, um, for the for the listeners out there, you know, because it, the, you know the podcast is called "Before You Kill Yourself." What are some takeaways for that person who um, is on the edge and and, and and like like before you kill yourself, like have you considered this or looked at that? Like, what are some what are some tools or ways that we can reframe some things that it's like that we can we can uh, give to them? First of all, I think it's it's okay. You know, if you're feeling suicidal, it's okay. Don't get so hard on yourself. It's understandable. A lot of people feel it. And a lot of people don't do anything about it. That's the good news. Recognize that the pain is temporary. If you commit suicide, that's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You know, if you can find somebody to talk to, do it. You know, there are also suicide hotlines that you can go up and look. You can call somebody and talk about what's bothering you. You know, if you have confidants, if you have people you feel connected to in your social group, you can talk to them. Uh, if you want to reach out to a therapist, you know, you get that undivided attention and you can just talk about all the things that are like going on in your mind. These are all different ways that a person can gradually start to let the pain go mm-hmm. so that the deeper pain can eventually start. They can start to let go, too. It's a process, but there's definitely hope, you know. I have felt suicidal in my own life growing up. Um, and I remember one of the hardest things was I didn't think anybody else went through what I was going through because mm. I wasn't necessarily exposed to that kind of environment where people talk about these things. Right. But I remember specifically thinking to myself that if I can get through this, there are probably so many other people in the world who are going through exactly what I'm going through that maybe if I can talk a little bit about what I've gone through, it can give them some hope. And look, now I'm a doctor. You right. know, I went from being suicidal to yeah. I'm a doctor. Right. And to where I can talk about this stuff. It's really empowering. And, you know, if you can turn your, know that you can turn your pain into a really inspirational success story. Right. Turn your pain into profit. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and where can people find If somebody wants to work with you, like what? what's your social media? What are... Sure, people. And I'm going to link all that stuff. Okay, people can find me on the web at www.westlapsychologist.com. Um, I have links to my Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Yelp, up there, and I do offer a free phone consultation. You know, so if people want to first talk with me, mm-hmm. talk about like what their story is a little bit, and feel like if I'm a good fit for them, that's completely free. And do you do also Skype or uh, video? Uh, yeah, I, I do yeah. video conferencing. Okay. It's a secure system okay. um, so they can f- feel rest assured that their privacy is not going to be compromised. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today. Thank and, you for having uh, me. And I'm sure you, you guys out there got a lot from it. I know I did. Uh, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leo. All right, thank you.